0: We're going to have our Bible reading now before James comes, so if you have a Bible with you and you'd like to turn to Psalms chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one on the P-Rack in front of you, and in that copy we are on page 448. Again, that's Psalm chapter 3, Psalm 3, page 448. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people.
1: Well, you join us this morning for the first part in our Sunday morning teaching series in the book, of the Psalms. Now the Psalms is really the 150 long chapter of the songbook of the Bible. And what we have in the Psalms really are two simple things, beautiful, wonderful declarations about our good and great God, and then that collides. Those truths collide with the experiences, the emotions and the circumstances of people. That's really what we have going on in the Psalms. Is a collision between the goodness, the, the truths of our God, his goodness, his greatness, his sovereignty, his mercy, his grace. And where he meets us on the other side, that collides with the diverse experience of humanity, the circumstances, what we see is the diverse seasons that people go through as they begin to wrestle with the truths about God. There's that collision. Now, now now, what we want to do with this series is really simple. It's a very, very short snapshot in the book of Psalms, just five weeks long. We're not going through every psalm, just a selection of five psalms and really to show us what kind of seasons the psalmists go through and how they navigate those seasons. So really, all this is about is looking at various seasons we find ourselves in and looking at how the Psalms can help us, how God's Word can help us navigate through those seasons. How how the Psalms help us, give us language to speak when we find ourselves, when we don't have words, thoughts to think when we don't know what to think, places to stand when we don't know where to stand. So the Psalms I hope, will help us. Now, this yeah, we're looking at five seasons, but we want you to be able to apply this broadly across the Psalms as well to show us how they can be used for every season that we find ourselves in. Now, I want to pray once more before we dive into Psalm 3. I want to ask for God's help as we study this Psalm. So let's pray once more. Lord, we want to thank you for your word because we know in your word you speak. In your word, we hear your voice. So we pray by your spirit you would make us attentive Make us sensitive to hear you, because we know when you speak and when we hear you, our lives change. So we pray you would mold us, you would reshape us, you would renew us, you would break us, you would remold us and make us and break us again and again, more and more into the image of Jesus. Show us, we want to hear you, and we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to be looking at Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, we find a rather famous Bible character called David in the middle of some rather fearful circumstances. His family is fractured. There is chaos in the home and in the family. He is faced with fear. But what I want to look at this morning is where David stands as he's in that season of fear when he's constricted, when he's pressed in from all sides, when he feels that fear, I want to ask the question, where does David turn? What does he stand on? What truths does he run into and lean on when he finds himself in fear? Now we all know what it's like to fear. Every single one of us, fear is probably the most primal emotion of the human being. Babies enter the world, their cry is a cry of fear. As toddlers as we grow up, we know fear. As children, as adolescents, young adults, middle-aged adults, elderly adults, we all know what it's like to fear. Now me specifically, I can remember the first big fear that I ever had as a human, as a child, and it surrounds my obsession for dinosaurs as a five and six year old. Now, I love dinosaurs. I had dinosaur encyclopedias. You asked me to name any dinosaur, I could do it. I could tell you the characteristics of the dinosaurs. I knew it all, and I loved it. And so one family member had the bright idea that me and my brother, because of my obsession with dinosaurs, should go to see Steven Spielberg's new 1993 dinosaur film, Jurassic Park. It was going to be a great idea. So me and my brother were taken off to the cinema. Now, I don't remember the first chunk of the film. I don't remember how the story unfolds. My only memory of this film is sheer terror. Now you know the part of the film where the T-Rex eats the goat and as they're sitting there in the jeep looking up and then all of a sudden the wires kind of break and the T-Rex then starts to come out. I was so scared at this point. I remember getting off my cinema seat, crouching down behind the seat, behind person in front of me and not wanting to get up and see. And I can remember thinking to myself, I can hear all the action going on, I can hear this dinosaur growling and the bits of metal breaking and people getting scared. I've got to look up, I've got to peep up from my seat to see what's going on. Now the moment I looked over my seat was the moment, that famous moment in the film where the T-Rex suddenly roars. You know when it it roars, it looks around and it roars and it's a huge roar. The cinema shook, it was absolutely terrifying. So I peeped up just at that moment to see this. And I can remember letting out a blood-curdling scream at that point. I was about six, years old Ah! so that moment me and my brother were scooped up and we were taken out of the cinema but this this film had left it's it left an imprint on me because because not just for a few nights or a few days I think it was probably years after this film I was convinced that in the dark corners of my home there were dinosaurs hiding ready to eat me so at the top of the stairs I'd look down the hallway there was a dark corner I'd think to myself I know there's a dinosaur at the end of the hallway and it wants to eat me And then I started thinking my wardrobe. My wardrobe was probably only about four and a half feet tall. But for some reason, I was convinced there was a dinosaur inside of there. So every time I passed the the, the wardrobe, I had to run pretty quickly because I didn't want it to get me. And then when I lay in bed at night, I thought to myself, there is a dinosaur under my bed. I I don't know how it got in there. It's only six inches thick under my bed. But there's a dinosaur in there. I know it's there. And as soon as I close my eyes... This dinosaur's going to creep out with its claws and its sharp teeth and it's going to wait till I fall asleep and I'm going to be a tasty midnight snack. I am terrified of this dinosaur under my bed. Now, maybe you had fears like that growing up. I don't know if it was dinosaurs, but we have those fears growing up. We think, well, there's, there's something in a the closet, there's something we're afraid of the dark or something in the dark. and They're afraid of something under our beds. Now, the thing is, and let's be honest here, when we grow up... <laughs> We come to the knowledge and the truth that there isn't a dinosaur under the bed. But I want to be really honest because there are still things under the bed. We only find out when we grow up the things under our bed change. And we, we don't spend our lives afraid of a dinosaur at the end of the hallway. We now spend our lives fearing that financial strain that won't seem to let go. We fear the rejection of a loved one. We fear whether or not that cancer is going to come back. We we don't fear a dinosaur in a four and a half foot closet anymore. We fear the future and everything it holds. We, We fear for a loved one as we watch them walk a path that we know they shouldn't be walking. We fear that boss who is constantly threatening us and having to go to work and face them. We fear the future. We fear the past. We fear that thing that we did back then and all of its consequences coming to light and us being exposed today. We, we don't fear a dinosaur under the bed. We, we, we fear loss of control. We fear the unknown. We fear our lives not amounting to anything. We fear the criticism of others. We fear what other people are going to say about us. We fear their opinions. We constantly fear. We can say our lives are marked by fear. You know what? There are still things under the bed. We just find out when we grow, they change. While lives so often are marked by fear. But how are we supposed to handle that though? Because when we open the Bible, we read that our God is passionate for his people not to live lives that are marked by fear. I mean, as we go through the Bible, fear is mentioned hundreds of times. The words fear not mentioned 365 times, one for every day of the year. It's a huge deal in the Bible. We see that our God is passionate for his children, not to fear the things that they don't have to fear as his children. Passionate about it. But still, we find our lives are marked by fear. We are scared of stuff. We can be gripped by fear. We know how it steals joy. We know how it steals peace we know what those constricting chains of fear concern worry and anxiety can do to us we know how it paralyzes us but what do we do with it how are we supposed to fight it how are we supposed to face it what truths do we need to lean on in on where do we what do we need to see where do we need to stand now now in psalm 3 we find david in the midst of a very very fearful situation and there's something key about what david does that i want us to see David looks past the fear and I want to see what he actually looks to. So David looks past the fear and I want to look how he responds to the fearful situation, what he sees, what he leans in on, what he stands on because if we can answer that question then maybe we can be equipped as we face the fear in our lives and as we navigate a season of fear we have something to look to and stand on too. So why don't we dive in to Psalm 3. Now, a little thing we need to, I think something we need to make, I need to make clear before we dive into this. I don't want to trivialize the intensity of some of our fear. Some of the the anxiety, the concern, and the worry that we face. I don't want this to trivialize the intensity of the fear that we face. What I would like Psalm 3 to be is exactly what these truths that David talks about are for him. What I want us to do is to kind of stand under the waterfall of the truth of Psalm 3 and have this wash over us. So that we can find something of a balm for the weariness in our fear. Is something of a, a soothing for the soul that has been ground down by constant and persistent fear. Maybe as we read through Psalm 3 we can feel a, a kind of loosening of the, the chains of fear that have kind of constricted around us. Maybe we could experience something, something of that. So let, let's dive into Psalm 3 right here, and I want to set the scene with the first two verses. David sets the scene for us. Look at this. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So so David sets the scene for us right there and tells us that there are people against him. That's the cry of his heart. That's what he writes down in this psalm. That's what he prays and sings out. Everyone seems to be against me. Now the suggestion of scholars are that this is, this Psalm 3, is part of a very specific experience in David's life, and that is when his son Absalom turns against him. Now I know most of us in here, even if you're new to church this morning, you've probably heard about the Bible character called David. I mean this is the same David who defeated Goliath as a shepherd boy. Well this David grows up to become a legendary king in Israel. He achieves legendary status as the king of Israel. So under David's reign as king, the borders of the country expand. There is relative peace across the land. Uh, The economy and the wealth and the prosperity of the country grows. But most importantly, under the reign of David, the spiritual life of the nation of Israel is as good as it's ever been. They are focused upon the Lord, worshipping him as he deserves, as he should be, as he has called his people to do. So David achieves this legendary status. Now we look at David's life and we see that he achieves this status amongst the people of Israel, but we often miss how badly the end of his life actually finished. Now now yes, he did have that, that status. He was the kind of king that every other king was graded against. You know, the kings that come after David, they're graded against David. They're either a great king because he had a heart like David or a bad king because he was nothing like David. But the last chunk of David's life, he gets things very, very wrong. There's a serious sin that has serious consequences and just sends his home life spiraling out of control. Now one day, David gets up. He looks across the city. And he sees a woman named Bathsheba. And he says, I want that woman. Regardless of whether she has a husband or not, I want that woman. So being the king, abusing his authority, he does exactly that. He ends up having her husband killed and he takes her as his own. But then he begins to feel the consequences in his home as things in his life just begin to spiral out of control. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. One of his sons, Amnon, ends up raping his half-sister, David's daughter, Tamar. Another brother, Absalom, is so so furious with Amnon that he ends up killing his brother. And it just gets crazy because Absalom then has to flee and he's in exile. David refuses to see Absalom because of the pain he's inflicted. But while Absalom is away, David's son, he starts to get more and more upset. He begins to get bitter He begins to get resentful. His heart begins to turn towards, against his father David. And we can pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. And the messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Continue on in 2 Samuel chapter 15. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. That is a sign of mourning. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So what's happening here is that David's son has turned against him. David's son Absalom has increased kind of his own authority. He's surrounded himself with people who are disillusioned with David's reign. And that he's coming into the city to try and overtake his dad's reign. David then has to flee because he doesn't want this conflict. And it's in that moment that David writes Psalm 3 as his fractured family seems to be falling apart, these chaotic circumstances, David is in that kind of a fear. So we reread verse 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. You see, that's where David is writing from. A place of heartbreak. A place of family chaos. But most assuredly, a place of intense fear. I want you to see the first word of verse 3. But you... O Lord, but. So we know there's a contrast coming. David's framed the fearful circumstances in verses 1 and 2. And in verse 3 down to verse 8, you will see some amazing statements about the characteristic of our God. David, in the middle of his fear, sees, leans in on, stands on the truths of the character of God. Now I want to read through verses 3 to verse 8, and as we go, Just kind of make a mental note of all of the attributes of of God that David states. Maybe if you want to underline as we go, you can do that too. But look at verses 3 to 8. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, and I love this, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I'm not afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. Sounds awful, but he's stating God's justice there. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Do you see what David does, and I think this is absolutely key. Notice some of those attributes. God, you are my shield. You are my glory. You're the lifter of my head. You are the one who hears me from my holy hill. Your translations might say he's a defender and he's a deliverer. My translation here says that he is a salvation. David just continues because he recognized all of the attributes of his God. So, in the place of fear... In the season of fear, in the chaotic circumstances that seem to be spiraling out of control, David stands on the truths about his God that he already knows about his God. You see that? In the fear, in the chaos, David stands on the truths he already knows about his God. Now I think with what we've just read from verse 3 to verse 8, we can categorize what David recognizes and what he sees in three ways. Three key things that kind of give way to everything he says in Psalm 3 about his God, okay? The first one, the first thing I think that underpins, this underpins everything David is saying. God is sovereignly good. God is sovereignly good. Now, the word sovereignty, we like that word because it describes God's power and authority and his orchestration and his involvement over all and in all. Now, sovereign is a word we use to speak about a monarch. We say, we say the Queen of England is our sovereign of this country. So she, was not really politically, but one day the, the monarchs were, used to be, sovereign over the nation. They, they were the highest authority in the land. They were over every authority. They were involved in all, and they have an authority above every single authority. And that's the same concept we use to speak about our God. How about our God is over all? Not just over a nation, not just over a continent, not just over one single ruler, but over the entire universe, orchestrating, in control, involved in the goings-on of our universe, and involved in the intricacies of our own lives too. We say that God is sovereign. But I think what David noticed here, and this is a very, very important distinction here, that in his sovereignty, God is good. That in his sovereignty, God is sovereignly good. Now, illustrate what I mean by that. Now, now, imagine the village over there, Bradford St. George. Imagine Bradford St. George builds a new school. So there's, there's kids all over the place. We need a new school. Let's build a new school. So they put up a new, brand, brand brilliant new school building, and they find teachers, and then they find themselves a head teacher. They say, right, okay, here are the kids that are coming to school, here are the teachers we're going to have at the school, and here's the head teacher that we're going to have. And the head teacher of this school is going to preside over the school. The head teacher is going to make the decisions, the head teacher is going to be involved in the lives of every teacher, the head teacher is going to help with the curriculum, the head teacher is going to know each, each, each student at the school individually. We want the head teacher to have authority over everything, to be the highest authority in the school. Now, I'm guessing if I'm a parent sending my kid to that school, I'd say, great, that's what a head teacher is supposed to do. But what's the head teacher like? I mean, is the head teacher a good head teacher? Is the head teacher going to be a bad head teacher? What are the credentials of the head teacher? What's the characteristics of the head teacher? Do they have any experience in being a head teacher? I know they're supposed to preside and have authority over the school, but what are they going to be like as they have that authority? There's one thing to know that the head teacher is sovereign over the school. It's another thing to know how they are going to be sovereign over the school. Now in the Bible, we really read about our God being sovereign. But we read about our God being sovereignly good. Good in His sovereignty over all. In the way that he's involved in the intricacies of what goes on in the universe, in our world. The way he orchestrates the nitty gritty and is present and involved in the bits and pieces of our lives. You see, I think David recognizes right here that God is sovereign, but he's sovereignly good in everything that he does. Now now I think for us this morning, because we are 21st century people who need to know everything, and we're not satisfied until we have every single answer. That leaves us with two responses. One is perhaps frustration and one is comfort. Now, now because we're 21st century people who need to know everything, we like these kinds of statements, but it leaves us with unanswered questions. When here God is sovereignly good, what he presides over everything, yes. He's authoritative over everything. Everything that goes on in our world, yes. And everything that goes on in our lives and the lives of people around us, he is over all, Yes. Well, that has unanswered questions that come along with it. Well, if he's sovereignly good, then why did that happen in our world? And if he's sovereignly good, then why did that happen in my life? And if he's good in his sovereignty, then why did that happen to my loved one? Very often we have these questions that arise when we hear statements like that. But we do need to adopt a place of humility that just about every people group, every culture and every nation has had to adopt throughout history. 21st century people like us want the answers to everything. We want to know why. Sometimes we get the answers why. Sometimes we find out. Sometimes we know. But the majority of the times we don't know why. And the call for us, like all of the people throughout history, is to adopt that place of humility and say, actually we don't get given all of the answers that we need. But we do know he's sovereignly good. The second thing, our second response is one of comfort. Because if God is sovereignly good, then we have a truth to find comfort in the midst of our fears. If He is sovereignly good, then He is good in all that He does. If He is sovereignly good, then He's seeking His own glory, but He's also seeking the good of those who belong to Him. If God is sovereignly good, then He's in it for His glory and our good too. You see that? If God is sovereignly good, then we have a comfort in our fear. Famous theologian John Calvin used to look at God's sovereignty and say, look, God's will for the world, he used, I quote, he says, it's an abyss. We can't get to the bottom of it. But what we can do with the truth of God's sovereign goodness is to take comfort in the fact that he is overhauled, that he is involved in all, and that he is behind all. He is involved. We don't have the answers, that's for sure. But this truth is a truth for comfort. And that's the comfort that David turns to in his fear. Okay, second thing that I think David sees here is he sees God as a refuge. Now, I know this word refuge doesn't crop up in Psalm 3, but the words David uses to describe God really do show us that God is a refuge. We see right there, he is the lifter of my head. He is a shield. Your translation might say he's a deliverer. My translation says he's salvation. Might say he's the defender. He's, he's the lifter of my head. He's, he's, you could just keep going. That psalm's just littered with statements of God being a place that David can run to in his fear. Imagine a child hurt themselves or in fear, running into the arms of their parent or guardian. and As, as, as their arms wrap around them, they get showered with kisses and their tears wiped away. It's that kind of imagery right here that David understands his God. Think about the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. That is what David recognizes, that God is a refuge. And then thirdly, God is attentive. He he hears me from his holy hill, David says. He hears me when I speak. Do you see what David recognized? God is attentive in his presence. God is attentive in his prayer hearing. And God is attentive in that he knows our needs. David recognizes as he says, as he sings out, as he prays out these attributes of God, he is recognizing here that God is attentive. Attentive in presence, attentive in prayer hearing, and attentive in that God knows his needs. Now there's something really key about all of this I think we need to recognize here. You see when David is in a fearful circumstance, when he is constricted by fear, Faced with something fearful on all sides. His family is falling apart. He doesn't really know what to do, but he's just fleeing. Something we need to see. David doesn't say, God, I'm in this fearful place. If I could just be set free from everything in my life that might possibly ever cause me fear then I would live the fearless life that you are calling me to live and I can live as a child of God. David doesn't say. Now, it might be nice. It would definitely be nice if that fearful situation would go. But David isn't saying, just set me free from anything fearful and I know life will be great. No, what does David do? David recognizes that in the fearful situation, he needs to know the character of his God. David recognizes, I have got to see past the fear. I've got to look past the fear and to see the character of God. You know, so often in our own lives, we think to ourselves, if I was just free from anything in my life that would, if I was free from the things that cause me fear, then I would be able to live that fearless kind of a life, that fear not life that a child of God can live. But if we spend our lives trying to get rid of everything that might possibly cause us fear, I don't think we could ever get out of bed in the morning. I don't think we could ever walk out of the front door. If I said to myself, right, in order to live fearlessly, I'm going to get rid of everything that could possibly cause me fear at any turn. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. You see, the biblical framework, and certainly this framework in Psalm 3, to live the kind of fearless lives that God calls his people to live, the kind of fearless lives that is available for God's children to live out, This is found, not in running away from fearful things, but cultivating an attitude, cultivating a perspective, cultivating a knowledge of how big God really is over it all. You see that? Living that fearless life that is available to the children of God is not by running away from everything fearful. Everything can cause us fear. Everything can make us anxious. Everything concerns us. Everything worries us. If, if being fearless was running away from fearful things, we wouldn't leave the house. But cultivating that fearless living is found in, in, in knowing, in, in leaning into, in standing on, and standing under the truths of who our God is. David looks past the fear to see the character of his God. David looked past the fear to see that God is sovereignly good. David looks past the fear to see that God is a refuge. David looks past the fear to see that God is attentive. The message for us this morning is ever so simple. Look past the fear and to see the character of our God. Look past the fear. I want to illustrate that. When I was in middle school, everybody was all about these things. That's a magic eye. I'm really nervous because I do not know what that is. I, I think it's probably something to do with baseball, I just found it online. I had to find a picture of a magic eye this morning. Maybe some of you can, I can see a bunch of you just like, I'm going to see it. I think it's probably something to do with baseball. But I could never, ever, ever, and have never been able to do this. And at middle school, we would sometimes have English classes in the library. And we were sitting there in a table in the library one day, and a friend said to me, oh, look, James, a magic eye. Go grab it. So I went and grabbed it, had no idea what it was. He said, open it. And if you squint, and if you look, and you move it around, you should be able to see an outline. I just can't see anything. This doesn't make sense to me. It's just a mess on a page. How am I supposed to see something? And everybody around me just seemed to find it really easy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's a frog right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a, someone kicking a football. Yeah, we can see it, yeah. But I could never do it. It used to frustrate me. And every time we'd come for an English class in the library, I'd pick the same book up, getting frustrated with this every single time. I cannot see what this picture is. And then one day, someone on another table said, what you have to do is you kind of have to squint slightly across your eyes And then imagine you're looking at something behind the page. Look at something about six inches behind the page. And when you do that, an outline of of something will just kind of emerge. I thought, well, I'll try that then. So squint my eyes slightly cross eyed, try and look at something six inches behind the page. And just for half a second, it appeared. And I saw a train for the first time. Nobody could take it away. I saw a train on that piece of paper. I was so excited, so over the moon about this that I completely lost concentration and I lost the train and I've never been able to do a magic eye since. But I know in that moment I saw it. But what was the advice from my friend in that? What was my advice? Look past it. Look past the mess on the page. Look past all of that. Look to the other side. Look beyond that. Because when you look beyond that, you will be able to see and make sense of what's going on. You see what David does in this in Psalm 3 is that David looks past the fear. David looks past the fear to what, though? To see the character of his God. David looked past the fear to see that God is sovereignly good. He sees that God is a refuge. He sees that God is attentive. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, well, that's easy to say. But when you're in the midst of fear, and when your mind is clouded, when your heart is weighed down and you can't see forward, that's nice, but it's really hard to see. Well, let me make this more simple. David, King David, looked forward to the coming of God's rescuer. God's rescuer who was going to show us in fullness what the character of God is really like. But we're in a different position. We get to look back we get to see into the face of the, the one that David hoped for. We get to see the person and the work of Jesus Christ and experience what it means to know and follow Him. And what we have in the face of Jesus Christ are these attributes on full display. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see God's sovereign and good plan for us and for our world. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see God's sovereign and good plan to step into the world, to come and take on the form of a servant, to live the life we could never live, to get it right where we get it wrong, and to die the death we deserved, and then to rise to new life so the new life could be ours, and then through faith and repentance, we can know that sovereign and good plan of God in the person of Jesus. You see, in the face of Jesus Christ, we see that God is a refuge. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see that we have someone to run to, We have someone who is attentive to us. We have someone who says, the Father knows all of your needs. You don't need to worry. You don't need to fear this. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see all that David saw and so much more. Now, I need this this morning. You know, when when I'm preparing a message, I think it's really important that whoever is teaching the Bible needs to have the truth of whatever that is of that passage goes through you. I think that's really important. I, think, I don't want to get up here on a Sunday morning or any context in church without having allowed God's word to weigh in on me. And as I've been studying this, I have felt, I felt the challenge. I felt the need for these truths probably more heavily than I've felt with other times I preached more recently. For some reason, this has just hit home with me. Because I've been studying this, I see David look past the fear and I've had to allow that truth to weigh in on me and come to this place of admitting that I'm a whole lot more fearful than I'd like to admit. Now, you might say, and people often do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you're a person who's consumed by fear, James. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't look at you and think that you are fearful. I wouldn't say you are constricted by the chains of fear and, and that fear is weighing down your joy and peace and courage in life? Well, let me be honest. I am more fearful than I ever realized. I am more fearful than I like to admit. It, it may, maybe you're like me, but I seem to have this broken record in my head that goes round and round and round and just seems to say the same message over and over and over again. The same messages, and these messages begin to weigh down on me, and I begin to believe them. My kinds of fear, I don't know, I fear that I would preach an unacceptable sermon. That's a genuine fear. A a fear for the financial future of my family. A, a, A fear that I'm going to be found out for being stupid. That cripples me. I fear that I would be a bad boss to the staff here at church. I I, I fear that I would be not strong enough for people. And then I fear that I've been too strong and heavy-handed. I fear so often that I would accidentally say something hurtful or awkward to someone. I fear what people think of me. And I give them too much say. I fear that I wouldn't be a good enough dad. I fear that I'm a rotten husband. I fear that I'd get ill and then leave the others in my life without the support that I think they really need. I mean, I could just keep going. My life is clouded by fear. But maybe in that, I need to see what David sees. It's not a maybe I do. And maybe you do too. Because I need to lean in on where David leans in on. I need to stand where David stands. This morning for all of us, I think what we need to do is to stand under the same waterfall of the truths about God that David stands under and to have that waterfall cascade over our hearts and minds, not just to wash us, but to pummel us until our hearts are tender and soft with the peace and the courage and the joy of God that fear has too often stolen. I need to stand under the truths of Psalm We see these truths. God is sovereignly good. He's a refuge and he's attentive. It begins to soothe my fear. With those financial worries that we go through. Let's lean into the truth that David leans in on. When when we fear illness, whether that cancer or not is going to come back for us or a loved one. Let's see and look beyond the fear to the character of God. When we fear that the criticism and the opinions of others, when we fear the rejection of a loved one, look past the fear and see the character of God. When we fear what that threatening boss is going to do to us on Monday morning, look past the fear and see the character of God. When I fear the future and all that it holds, and when I fear the past and the regrets being brought up, and then being exposed, and everybody knowing, look past the fear and see the character of God when I fear the unknown when I fear the loss of control when I fear it all the message this morning is to look past the fear and in the face of Jesus Christ see the character of God on full display you know it turns out there aren't dinosaurs under my bed in the wardrobe or around the end of the hallway but there are still things lurking under the bed we find out as we grow up There are still things under the bed. It's only that they've changed. But as we face those fears, as we endure a season of fear, and as we seek to live the lives that God's children are called to live, the fear not kind of lives, lives. let us look past the fear and to see the character of God in the face of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word, grateful for David's heart-wrenching experience that shows us a way to walk through a season of fear. So we pray the same attributes, the same characteristics that David catches sight of, the same waterfall of truth that he stands under. We pray that that same waterfall would rush over us too, and pummel us into a place of peace, courage, and joy that fear so often steals. We know you're passionate about a fear-not kind of a life. And we want to know it, we want to experience it, we want to live it. So Father, help us. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.